Dateline, March 1st, 1932, New Jersey. This was a thing as traveling back in time to look at the infamous kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Yes, a kidnapping. This true crime story not only laid the groundwork for the modern media's obsession with the legal procedure, but the jury might have sentenced the wrong man to death. Find out all about it on this week's episode of This Was a Thing. Oh, I'm thinking so fondly of mid-Atlantic accents and goldfish swallowing. Oh, the joy that I feel thinking of the New Deal and the Hayes Code. This was a thing. I can't get my mind off those fireside chats and the music of Ruth and Ing. Jesse Owens could run, Greta Garbo had fun, and sweet Charlie Temple could sing. All these things and more were a Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On this week's episode, we are looking at the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Ray, let me ask you before we we dive into this. People have said this is the uh, biggest story since the resurrection, and it is the trial of the century, 20th century, obviously. How much familiarity do you, Raymond Michael Hebel II, have with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping? Um, I don't really. I know that it was a big deal. And I'm sure that in my random Wikipedia black holes over the years, I'm I've ended up on the page, but I mm-hmm, couldn't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you the specifics. Wonderful. So, Ray, where were you on March first, nineteen thirty-two? I was out of town. I swear, I swear. I have a bunch of people I could tell. I I was with I was with a ton of people. I was with a ton of people. They all have amnesia, but I was with them. I was with them. I swear. I swear. Thank you. <laughs> that was acting. <laughs> He's so good. Did you hear that, folks? He's good. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping uh, is a monumental moment in the 20th century, yes, because one, unfortunately, I'm sure as you all know by now, and if you don't, (laughs) here comes a spoiler. Oh, God. Oh, God, here comes a spoiler. Buckle up, people. 90-year-old story. (laughs) Hot off the presses. You might as well just skip to the end now. The podcast goes straight to the game, folks. (laughs) All right, Mark Schroeder, what do you got for us? Oh, my gosh. This was a thing because uh, we we discussed this. It's a pretty big deal, folks. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should Google it. (laughs) Who am I? What am I, your teacher? Use Bing, Google. I don't give a shit. You want to ask Steve? Ask Steve. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about Lindbergh cheese, huh? I love that. Oh, no, no, Lindbergh. Lindbergh. Lindberger? Yeah, Lindbergh cheese. Charles Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy, yes, a man the world was obsessed with. It's hard today to think of anyone who's as universally loved as Lucky Lindy was in the 1920s and 30s. Maybe Ray or the good wife, Zach Grenier, but that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Now, uh, Charles, you know who Charles Lindbergh was? Do you know who he was? He was a pilot? Yeah, he's a pilot. Yeah, I knew that. Mr. Lindbergh, when he was 25, became a hero to all and showed the world the future when he made the first solo Non-stop flight from New York to Paris in 1927. You know that he flew so low that uh, people could people could see him flying. I think group went really well today for you. <laughs> it's good, man. 
you're being freer, you're being looser, you got more jokes coming out. This is, I, th- <laughs> I think, I think you're in good shape. Don't you? Don't you feel a glow? Yeah, but I think it's the jaundice coming back up. <laughs> Lindbergh took his own life in his hands to show the world the future, and he received the Medal of Freedom, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Legion of Honor, and Times Man of the Year. Oh. <laughs> Ray is impressed by that list. Times man of the year, huh? Oh, la-di-da. But Lucky Lindy wasn't just content with flying across the Atlantic. Oh, no, along with Alexis Carroll, he created the first perfusion pump, which helps with heart and organ transplants. So if you ever have a transplant, go ahead, think of Lucky Lindy. Uh, (laughs) If you ever take a flight from New York to London, think of Lucky Lindy. If you ever take a flight while getting a transplant from New York to London, well, then you have a really serious medical issue. Feel like you're going to come soon? Think of Lucky Lindy. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, 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 I'm, every time I do the perfusion pump on myself, I'm going to be thinking yeah. Lucky Lindy. <laughs> okay, I'm going to make a note of that. Hey, guess what happened in 1929? Lucky Lindy got even luckier and got married to a woman named Anne Morrow. And in 1930, they had their first child, Charles Lindbergh Jr. And now when we hear the name Lindbergh, we don't think of aviation, but of the greatest crime of the 20th century, one that I think outranks all the others. There are so many trials of the century that we've had in uh, the 20th century. And I think this is probably the biggest one. This whole case, because it went on for so long and was so uh, sensationalized, and it was about ch- an innocent child losing his life and, and, the, and the fact that um, uh, his father was a hero. I don't think we've ever had anything like that before. The OJ trial was very big. Yeah. The OJ trial was very big, but there's something when a child gets involved that automatically changes it I a mean, little I bit. I mean, if the media was what it was, like with television and stuff back in like 19... 19- 2930s, mm-hmm. they probably would have outdone the OJ trial just because of it being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, absolutely. like if, if, if you were to put, if, if you put the two cases together in the same, with all the same factors, you know what I mean? Then I feel like this one would probably outrank it. Absolutely. And this one is also going to start forming the basis of what happens when tragedies happen to celebrities. Mm. Because at this point, we have radio. At this point, we have movies. We have uh, newsreels on the movies. We don't have television. We also have newspapers, obviously. And all of that is going to really implode itself. Because like you said, yes, if there were, if they had the technology that they have today back then, absolutely, this would be covered 24-7. But they were pretty much covering it 24-7 in this environment as well. And that's going to be the first time that this happens. One of the first times. We're going to talk a little bit now about the actual kidnapping itself. So the Lindberghs lived in East Amwell, New Jersey. And on the night of March 1st, 1932, the baby's nurse uh, went to check in on 20-month-old Charles Jr. in his crib and saw that he wasn't there. So she went to see if the baby was with Anne, his mother, but Anne was in the bathtub. So they told Charles, who went to the boy's room, he sees an empty crib and a note on the windowsill. And the note was in broken English and contained two, this is going to be an important part, so I'm going to try to describe this to the best of my ability, two interconnected blue circles, like a Venn diagram, surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and then two holes punched on the um, opposing sides of the blue circles. So this is going to be, if you get messages for ransom, like with this symbol, you know it's legitimate. Got it. That's like, that's the call sure. card. Now they probably have a QR code. <laughs> Here's what the note read. Uh, Dear sir, have 50.000, then the dollar sign, ready, R-E-D-Y, 2500 in 
two zero bills and uh, blah, blah, blah. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or for notify the police the child is in gut care. Indication for all letters are sin- signature and three halls, H-O-H-L-S. Well, if I had to guess, I'd say that English wasn't our suspect's first language. All right, let's go down to Ellis Island. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you, Ray. That's going to be very similar to what goes on in this story, just so so you're aware. I'm guessing the suspect was wearing a newsboy cap and a long trench coat. I'm guessing the the suspect was uh, crutchy from Newsies. (laughs) Hey, come on, baby. Seize the day. I thought you said seize the baby. All right, and steal the babe. Come on, Jack. (laughs) So Lindbergh, uh, seeing this after reading the letter, grabs his gun. He runs outside to see if the people are still there, if he can catch them. And he sees footprints underneath the window, pieces of a broken ladder and a baby blanket. So they call the police and soon the investigation begins to find the Lindbergh baby. Now, the police descend on the house and they can find no fingerprints on the letter or in the room or on the ladder and that the kidnapper actually wore something on the bottom of his or her shoes to make footprints tricky. So you could see the size, but you couldn't see the the texture underneath it. It's like clown shoes. It's clown shoes. It's a clown cadiddle hopper. <laughs> took the Lindbergh baby. Uh, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> now, the handwriting on the note uh, seems to be done by the same person. So it's all in the same person's penmanship. And based on the way it's written, they think it's a person of German origin, to which Lindbergh said, oh, Germany, let's not get involved. Also, folks, this is not even part of today's episode, but I feel like I should need, I need to mention it. Charles Lindbergh in future years has gotten a reputation as being someone who was like, the United States should not get involved with uh, the war over in Germany at the time and only supported, people were saying he was anti-Semitic. So uh, I know someone's going to be like, why are you saying anti-Semitic? Well, there I did. So let's move on with our lives. Really? People were anti-Semitic back then. Could you believe it? Wow. Now, believe it or not, the biggest clue in this investigation was going to be the broken ladder, which was uh, constructed by someone who didn't build often, but it seemed to have a general idea on what to do in terms of building a ladder. They examined the wood, the assembly, and all of the uh, investigation and inspection of this of this ladder that was left outside the window. That's going to play a huge part on later on down the line and will probably be the biggest piece of evidence of convicting our kidnapper. And because we're dealing with a celebrity and a national hero, there was much more involvement uh, than for the average kidnapping. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover told the New Jersey police that they were at their disposal. So whatever the uh, state police needs, FBI is more than happy to provide. The president was kept abreast of all developments. And even though the kidnapping was a state crime, uh, put it under federal jurisdiction, the New Jersey police offered a $25,000 reward for information. And people on the next day sadly woke up to headlines with the tragedy and the picture of the little baby Lindbergh. So this is what uh, the general public sees and imagine their reaction. These are the only motion pictures of Charles Augustus Lindbergh and they were specially shown in America to aid in his recovery. He was 20 months old when he was stolen away at night from this window. The whole country was aroused by the terrible crime and an intensive search was carried out by day and night, ultimately leading to the discovery of the poor murdered child. Soon the Lindbergh house became ground zero for people with good intentions and not so good intentions, 
all destroying evidence in the process. And of course. Now, this is, you know, I think because nowadays we live in an era of just true crime being everywhere and it's it's such a thing for people now. I think one of the things that you start to learn watching those shows is like how important it is to protect the crime scene. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be one of the first places where that's implemented. And then later, late, as teaching, like later on used as a teaching tool to be like, this is an example of what happens when it goes awry. And then, of course, there were charlatans uh, like Gaston B. Means, uh, who told socialite Evelyn Walsh McLean that he knew where the baby was. And if she gave him $100,000, he could get the baby back. She gave him the money. He ran off with the money and then spent 15 years in prison for embezzlement. So this is something that I think we're going to see a lot of, which is people trying to make money off of a crime either in in a, in a uh, in a way like this or people that are associated with the crime or the event itself going out and trying to get some money. Let's take a look at the suspects. Someone needed to head the investigation and steer it, and that person was Charles Lindbergh. Oh, good. Charles Lindbergh would be running the entire operation because he was a hero. They allowed him to do this, but he's also the father of the kidnapped child. There's a world where he could possibly be a suspect. Yeah. But there's also a world in which he's going to be so emotional in terms of dealing with the, the where his child is that he might not be the best person to lead the investigation or be objective in any of this. Yeah. And I think, can you imagine that today where like the celebrity or the per, the person would be allowed to lead the, their own investigation? Absolutely not. This is another- Especially with no background in law enforcement. Oh, absolutely. And this is something that also nowadays when you there used to be times when celebrities would sort of run the event and it all ended because you'll see that the way that they handled the investigation was not the best and there's a feeling today that maybe the person that was uh convicted and tried and executed for the crime either was not the actual person or there was other people involved. So either way, they need somebody to actually be maintaining this investigation. Stand back. I'm leading the case. You don't have any background in law enforcement. Yes, I do. What is it? Well, I flew from New York to London. All right, here's your badge. <laughs> it's 1929. That's a pretty good resume. That's pretty good. Now, the, you'll find the badge at the bottom of your Cracker Jack box. <laughs> Schools out for podcasts. Ray. I thought that was pretty good. Me too. You know what else is good, Ray? Being one of our Patreon subscribers. How does one do that? Head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N and search for This Was A Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and help you relive your youth. That might not be a good thing for some people, Rob. Who? Vitorino. Oh. Now, Celebrity gives you certain rights, and so he got to assemble his own team. Um, And his team included the superintendent of the New Jersey police, Herbert Schwarzkopf, Wall Street lawyer, Colonel Henry Breckenridge, and World War I hero, William Donovan. Help came from all over the world. And of course, there was the good old-fashioned American system of, I'll help you if you help me. Like the mob. Oh, good. Um, It was thought that this might be a mafia job, that that it was done... um, by the mafia. And so the biggest mafia honchos were asked, like Al Capone, who said that he could get the baby back if they would just let him out of prison. (laughs) He's like, I know where the baby is. You got to let me out. You know what they said to him? No dice. (laughs) So maybe more money was 
needed uh, to, to get people to like come forward with information. So the Lindberghs added 50000 to the New Jersey 25000 bringing it up to about a million dollars in today's currency. Okay. And, but remember also, folks, there was a depression going on at the same time. Maybe they need more manpower. So the government gives the Charles Lindbergh directly, the Bureau of Investigation, the Coast Guard, Customs Service, Immigration Service, D.C. Police, all get involved, but still no dice. They do not know where this child is. And then on March 4th, uh, a couple of days later, a new ransom letter arrived on uh, postmarked March 4th in Brooklyn. And it carried the perforated red and blue marks. Remember that from the letter? Mm -hmm. And the ransom now in this letter had been raised to $70,000. Then uh, a third ransom note, also postmarked from Brooklyn, showed up, also including the secret marks, arrived in uh, Breckenridge's mail. Remember Breckenridge, who's helping Lindbergh? The note told the Lindberghs that a man by the name of John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. So all the communication between the Lindberghs and the the um, the kidnappers is being done in the newspaper, but buried and hidden under like classifieds and help wanted. Oh. So you had to look for a specific ad. Now, you might be wondering, who is this John Condon that the kidnappers have decided to elect as their intermediary and representative. He was a retired Bronx school teacher who had offered $1,000 if the kidnappers would just turn the baby over to a priest. Well, the kidnappers reached out to Condon and said he could be the intermediary between them and Lindbergh, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So they went to him. Does that all make sense yeah, so yeah, far? Yeah, Okay. Now, following the kidnappers' last instructions of let us know that you got the note and put it in the newspaper, Condon placed a classified ad in the New York American magazine reading, Money is Ready, Jaffsy, J-A-F-S-I-E. Um, Jaffsy was going to, is the phonetics of Condon's initials. Okay. So the word Jaffsy is going to come up a lot in this episode as well. So just remember that. Okay. They responded, the kidnappers, and they demanded a meeting at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx with John Condon at night. Now the man Condon meant he Condon said he stayed in the shadows, had an accent and said he was part of a group of Scandinavians holding the baby and the baby was on a boat and was safe. And John Condon said, I don't think you even have the baby. And the person said, I will mail you something that proves to you that I do. And then on his way out, this guy said to John Condon, quote, would I burn if the package were dead? Meaning, would I be yeah. executed or killed if, I have a, if I've killed the Lindbergh baby? Interesting thing to ask. Now, on March 16th, Condon received um, a toddler sleeping suit by mail and a seventh ransom note. And so Condon brings the, the sleeping suit over to the Lindberghs, and they confirm, yes, that is baby Lindberghs. So Condon placed a new ad in the home news saying, quote, money is ready, no cops, no secret service. I come alone like last time. And on April 4th, Condon received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. So before today's technology, what could people do to keep track of these horrible people? And, you know, like nowadays, like you see the movies where they put like a little microchip or something Mm -hmm. or, or a tracker on it, right? Well, they couldn't do that back then. So what they did was they made a custom box for the money to go in. So that way, if they ever found that box, they would know if this belongs to the kidnapper. And this was really smart. The ransom money included a number of gold 
certificates. And the reason they did that was because gold certificates very soon were going to be pulled from circulation. Oh. So if you had a gold certificate, you had to go to the bank to transfer, to cash it in for real cash. That's smart. Before a certain date. So they were like, when the, when he starts showing up with it, we'll know. Now, the bills themselves, they weren't marked, but they were uh, their serial numbers were recorded. So with all this information, uh, it seems like they'll be able to get the baby back, right? The money's going to go over. I think. They'll get the baby. Well, on May 12th, a truck driver had to relieve himself, and he pulled to the side of the road about four and a half miles away from the Lindbergh home. And when he looked down, he saw something. Unfortunately, it was baby Lindbergh dead. It seemed his skull had been fractured. And baby Lindbergh had been there for quite some time, and the nation, how the world, mourned the baby's loss because baby Charles became everyone's child. Here is the patch of woods, barely four miles from his home where baby Lindbergh was found, his little body lying face downward in the underbrush, killed by those who kidnapped him. For 72 days so by June, now that we know that the baby has passed, it's it seems to be that the mafia is not somehow responsible for this. So the investigation then turns and they think it might be somebody who's in the house, somebody who was living in the house, knew the house, that was somehow able to help make this happen. And the first person that everyone suspects is a woman named Violet Sharp. And Violet Sharp is the maid in uh, the Lindbergh house. And she can make a ladder. And she can make a ladder. She was rude to the police. She was uh, a little arrogant to them. And when she was first questioned about her whereabouts on the night of the abduction, she said that, excuse me, she had gone on a blind date with another couple. She didn't remember who the date was. She didn't remember who the other couple was. And they saw a movie. She didn't remember what the name of the movie was. That's pretty suspicious. Yeah. Then during another interview, um, she said, no, no, no. We didn't. We actually went to a local roadhouse that evening. We didn't go to a bar. I mean, we didn't go to a movie. Lindbergh, what's interesting is, is the Lindberghs say, no, 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 it's not her. It's nobody on our staff. And because Lindbergh is leading the investigation, unfortunately, you- They closed the book on all those suspects. Everybody. Except Colonel Schwarzkopf. Remember him? Who's, he says, listen, I'm going to keep questioning her. He's like, you might think she's innocent, but I'm going to keep questioning her. Um, and so uh, he went to go question her again a third time. But, but by the time he got there, she had killed herself. Oh, geez. This is where it gets said. Some people think, well, obviously she was involved in some way in this conspiracy. And that's why she killed herself out of out of guilt and grief. Although since she's passed, it has come out that she did actually have an alibi that night. Yeah. So... Maybe she thought they were like no, nothing she said was gonna gonna help, and they were gonna come get her, even though she had nothing to do with it. Perhaps then the kidnapper was right under their nose and might be actually in on the investigation them, itself himself. And all eyes turned to John Condon. Uh, how was he able to get these people to trust him? And he had very erratic behavior after the baby's body was found. He was on a streetcar one day, and then ran up to the driver out of the clear blue and was like, I'm the, I'm the investigator of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. That's the kidnapper. I have to go get him. And like jumped off the trolley, ran around the park to look for this guy and then came back and was like, oh, I missed him. Like very, biz- I mean, just like bizarre shit. He would then like show up to random police departments and say that he would vow to find Cemetery John. That's the guy he... Yeah, kidnapper, right? Scandinavian. Yeah, Scandinavian. And uh, eventually, like all good Americans, he wanted to turn a buck from the tragedy, and he went on a vaudeville tour. His vaudeville act was called The Jaffsy, 
And then he sold his stories to Liberty Magazine and they serialized them in a section called Jaffsy Tells All. So no suspects, no leads. But that would all soon change because of gold. Gold, baby. Yes, the president said all gold certificates had to be exchanged for regular bills by May 1st, 1933. Otherwise, they would become worthless. And a few days before May 1st, a man brought about $2,000 worth to a New York City bank, uh, a man named J.J. Faulkner of West 149th Street. Now, the bank checked, and those certificates were part of the ransom money. Oh. So the cops went to 149th Street and... No one named Faulkner lived there. I bet it was a fake address. Right. Let everyone else like solve it first. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to play along, but I bet it was a fake address. So it was a fake address. And so during a 30-month period, more of those bills kept showing up along along a specific line. They they all the bills were kind of like in the same area and they figured out it was related to a train line. And the train line connected New York to the Bronx and the German enclave of Yorkville. German. Yorkville. Yorkville. They studied the certificates that they had gotten from this this Mr. Faulkner, and they noticed on one of them, there was a license plate number written in the margin of the bill, and this one came from a gas station. So the ma- they went over to the gas station, and they're like, Why, what is this license plate number on this bill? And he said, I wrote it down because the driver was acting really suspicious. And he said, I thought that maybe the money was counterfeit or that he had done something wrong. So I wrote down his license plate. Okay. So they track the car that the license plate is on to the Bronx to a German immigrant with a uh, criminal record and they begin to tail him. And he could tell he was being tailed and he led police on a high speed chase, but was arrested on September 19th, 1934. A high speed chase in 34 would be like... The suspect went 25 miles an hour. Unacceptable. But he did stop at all lights and signal. <laughs> well, fine. Life in prison. <laughs> and when this uh, per- this driver's house was searched, $14,000 of the ransom money was in his garage. Oh. And in his pocket was a single $20 gold certificate. And his name was Bruno Richard Hauptman. Listen to this uh, news footage from... Uh, uh, after his arrest. And this is Bernard Richard Hauptman, 35, whose arrest as Lindbergh ransom collector in the kidnapping has aroused America. Make an example of the kidnappers and let the punishment fit the crime. In this garage across the street from the Hauptman home, $13,750 of the ransom money shown here was found. Two cans were stuffed with the gold certificates and it was the passing of a gold certificate to Walter Lyle, a gas station attendant, that led to Hauptman's arrest. Suspicious of gold notes. So Richard Hauptman uh, grew up in Germany. He had a pretty rough life. He was arrested for armed robbery and for robbing the mayor's house with a ladder. Uh-huh. And in 1923, at age 24, he stowed away on a ship headed to New York City. He got here. He married a waitress named Anna and would have one child. Now, he's now labeled the most hated man in the world. Countless newspapers ran story after story about this horrible man from Germany who killed an innocent baby. But when he was interrogated... Hauptmann denied any involvement. During his interrogation, um, he was, uh, first of all, English was not 
his primary language, so he had problems with that. Probably German was, huh? He was beaten a few times in the, in the police interrogation, didn't seem to under have a strong understanding of what was being asked of him. But he did state that the money and other items um, that they found in the house were left with him by his friend and former business por- partner, Isidore Fish. Fish, though, had died on March 29th, 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. Now, Houtman stated he learned only after Fish's death that the shoebox that was left with him contained a considerable sum of money. They said, how come he never reported the money? He said, well, Fish owed me money, so I decided just to keep it. That was his way of of paying me back. Uh, But Houtman kept saying, I don't know anything about this kidnapping. I have no knowledge of the money that the money in the house was from uh, ransom. Whether or not you believe that is up to you. He was indicted in the Bronx on September 24th, 1934 for extorting a $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, he was on trial. Um, he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Jr. And two days later, he was surrendered to New Jersey authorities by New York Governor Herbert H. Lehman to face charges directly to the uh, kidnapping and murder of the child. The trial started in October 1934. The trial of the century took place in Flemingtown, New Jersey, and this tiny town became a crowded metropolis during the trial. To defend Hauptmann, the New York Daily Mirror paid for his attorney in exchange for his story rights. Defense attorney Riley listens as Hauptmann denies the kidnapping. As soon as you got the idea of kidnapping this child, just as is set forth in that letter. I never got an idea of kidnapping any child. Then that board from Hauptmann's house with Jaffe's address. That is not your handwriting. In spite of that denial, Attorney General Willens has the record to show that Hauptmann had previously admitted that Jaffe's address on the board was in his handwriting. The cross-examination grows more bitter. The trial was obviously not going good for Hauptman because the evidence was quite overwhelming. Handwriting experts showed similarities between uh, Hauptman's handwriting and the kidnapper's handwriting. They showed how the wood on the ladder was actually from Hauptman's floor. Condon's address and number were written on uh, Hauptman's wall. A sketch of the ladder appeared in his notebook. And for someone who had no source of income, had a new radio, which would have cost about uh, $8,000 in today's money. Uh, and his wife had just returned from an all-expenses-paid trip to Germany. And the Venn diagrams matched up. Yeah, that was the other thing. Uh, he has a huge tattoo of the Venn diagram <laughs> on his back. Uh, witnesses identified him as the man who would pay with the gold certificates. And it also didn't help that people testified that Fish, the business partner, was nowhere near the Lindbergh house and was dying of tuberculosis and was so broke he couldn't afford treatment or rent. Well, good. So needless to say, he was found guilty and sentenced to the electric chair. But he didn't go quietly because the New Jersey governor visited Houtman and said he didn't believe that this was a one-person job. And he ordered Schwarzkopf to keep investigating. Now, according to John Reisinger in Master Detective, New Jersey Detective Ellis Parker conducted an independent investigation in 1936 and obtained a signed confession from a former attorney named Paul Wendell. That created a pretty big sensation and resulted in the temporary stay of an execution for Hauptmann. Hauptmann was pronounced guilty and the Lindbergh case again hit the headlines. A defense appeal was rushed to the state capitol at Trenton, where the prosecution fought to uphold the death penalty. Hauptmann's defense attorneys faced documented proof of their client's guilt. In addition, mass hysteria was almost making a mockery of a deadly serious situation, which had brought death to a child, bitter grief to his parents, 
and which now meant life or death to the condemned. The case against Wendell collapsed, however, uh, when he insisted that he was coerced into giving his confession. Eventually, Houghton ran out of reprises and was executed on April 3rd, 1936. And that was the end of the crime of the century. Or was it? Oh. We'll be right back. Cliffhanger. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. We interrupt the nasal cavity singers to bring you this special news bulletin about the Lindbergh kidnapper, Bruno Hauptmann. A high-speed chase is happening right now in the Bronx. We go live to Calvin Hoover, a man in the air. Calvin? Yes, Warren, I came up to the roof with the ladder, and I'm standing here on my tiptoes to see what exactly is happening. We know that Bruno Hoffman jumped out of his window and began cranking his car. Because he was just cranking, the police couldn't do anything, but he fooled them all because he jumped into the rumble seat and began driving. No one fools the police, and the crowd didn't take kindly, so they began throwing fruit at his car in an attempt to stop him. But because it's a depression, as soon as they threw the fruit, they scrambled to pick it up because that's today's breakfast, lunch, and dinner for those in this upscale area. What do you see now, Calvin? Oh, it's getting intense. We are asking pedestrians to look both ways because this chase has gotten up to 15 miles per hour. It's like a speeding train. How unsafe. We are asking residents to stay in your house if you still have a house. Oh, wait. Oh, no. He just made a turn without signaling. Oh, wow, this man has a death wish. He's now going at least 16 miles per hour without a care in the world. Wait. He's getting out of the car. He's getting out of the car. Is he surrendering, Calvin? No, he's cranking in the car again. And the police are staying behind at a safe distance. They're at least ten blocks away. Oh, Bruno Hauptmann is back in. And oh no, the car won't stop. He's pushing it. He's pushing his car. Oh, the humanity. The boys in blue have gotten out of their car and are running towards him. Okay, they're helping him push. Wow, oh wow, the car is moving again. Cop and criminal working side by side. God, what a beautiful country. Ah, the chief of police has now shown up, and he's moving his boys and blew away from the car, and he's talking to Hauptmann. Maybe a surrender. No, he's giving Bruno a quarter so Bruno can fill up his tank. Oh, will this horror never end? So many pedestrians could be hurt by this maniac, but our boys in blue know what they're doing. Oh, no, oh, no, the generosity. Ah, oh, what's happening, Calvin? Charles Lindbergh just landed his plane on the street, and he's coming out and walking towards Bruno Hauptmann. Does he have a gun? No, Warren, like any good American, Charles only keeps a gun for hunting animals and those that aren't Judeo-Christian. No, he's walking towards Bruno and he has, oh my God, he has a gas can. Yes, he's filling up Bruno Hauptmann's car. Now Bruno is offering him a smoke and he's telling him a joke about Polish people. Oh, will this tragedy never end? Thank you, Calvin. We will bring you more news as it becomes available. In other news, let's look at the stock market. Still bad. Back to the nasal cavity singers with the hit song of 1933, I Only Have Eyes for Grace Coolidge. Thank you. This was a sketch. So now, you would agree this seems like a pretty open and shut case, correct? Well, yeah. But as we now know, our legal system doesn't always work correctly, and many since then have offered alternative theories on what really happened. I cannot think of, besides maybe the Kennedy assassination, I can't really think of a crime that has as many theories and ideas as what actually happened than the Lindbergh 
kidnapping. Because since Bruno Hoffman was executed in 1936, books after books after books have all come out reinvestigating exactly what went on during this uh, very, what looks like sloppy criminal investigation. Can you think of a crime? No, not really. Not like a sensationalized one, no. I mean, I feel like this is like the, I don't know, it was so big without the, like, with such little sources of media, too. You know what I mean? Like, it spread so much. It yeah. wasn't just like, I mean, the same with JFK and stuff, but now I feel like smaller stories get even bigger things because there's way more ways for people to take it in and stuff and have oh, their own theories and stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to also mention that one of the things that did come out of uh, Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s kidnapping is that on June 22nd, 1932, which was the day that would have been Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s second birthday, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, uh, sometimes known as the Lindbergh Law, and that makes kidnapping across state lines a federal crime that stipulated that such an offense could be punished by death. So some of the theories that have emerged, well, first of all, we'll, we'll talk about what the, pro what the problems were. There was inadequate police work, right? That's number one. Number two was you put the father at the head of the investigation, somebody who was in the house and could have a just, not justifiable, but motivation for some reason of, of, of killing a child, his child. Couldn't have an unbiased opinion on the investigation. No, not at all. No, 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 not at all. That Hopman's counsel was pretty ineffective and that there was really weaknesses in the witnesses and physical evidence because they've it's now been hypothesized that a lot of the witnesses were coerced a lot of witnesses felt such a passion to wanting to get justice for this child that maybe they misremembered things or lied about things the trial over the past almost 100 years now has been constantly reexamined once again folks i literally don't have a dog in this race i i will say i think that houtman was involved and i think that he, but he i don't think he acted alone i think the craziest evidence for his involvement to me was the fact that the ladder was made from wood in his floor that's what they've said and since then people have um said oh no that's not correct and that's not true but you know it's it's he said she said yeah. type situation his wife was so was very upset obviously, that uh, her husband was executed. And so in the 1980s, she tried to sue the state of New Jersey twice for money saying you wrongfully executed my husband without a fair trial, and she lost both times. But up until the day she died, she was one who wanted to wow. do it. The theory also then became that what had happened, because the question is, well, what happened to the Lindbergh baby? The theory, I think, is that when the person who had had the baby was going down the ladder, they dropped the baby. Uh, and the baby died, and they didn't know what to do because now it's a murder. And so they disposed of the baby's body and then kept going on with the charade in order to get money. So that's what they think happened because the baby was, I mean, also the baby was found so close to the house. Yeah. And then obviously he had been there, unfortunately, for a while. So I, I they think that's... That's what happened. They they don't think because the baby, like I said, died of a blow to the head. But they don't think that the blow to the head was done with an instrument. They yeah. think it was done because he fell. So, according to an author named Lloyd Gardner, a fingerprint expert named Erastus Mead Hudson. Hey, you got one. Did I really? Well, no, you got a name. A, a, you, oh, a good name, Erastus Mead Hudson. Applied a, a fingerprint uh, test to the ladder. That was more advanced, and what this one could do is it could find 
fingerprints on the ladder, even if the person was wearing gloves of some sort. What? If I understand this correctly. It's a rare, it's a silver nitrate fingerprint process. He put it on the ladder, didn't find the fingerprints. Even in places that whoever made the ladder, they had to have touched it. When this uh, fingerprint expert decided to tell the police what he had found, the ladder was uh, washed of all fingerprints. Wow. Then there's a, a, a gentleman named Jim Fisher. He's an FBI agent. He wrote two books, The Lindbergh Case and The Ghosts of Hopewell. And he feels that, no, Bruno Hauptmann was the only person who kidnapped the child. And he said, quote, Today, the Lindbergh phenomena is a giant hoax perpetrated by people who are taking advantage of an uninformed and cynical public. Notwithstanding all of the books, TV programs, and legal suits, Hauptmann is as guilty today as he was in 1932 when he kidnapped and killed the son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lindbergh. There's a book called uh, Crime of the Century, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Hoax. Oh, and that implies that uh, Lindbergh himself killed the baby, but it did it accidentally. That the idea was that they were playing around and uh, the baby died and he panicked. And then they blamed Hauptmann. The most recent book on all of this is a book by Robert Zorn, and it's called Cemetery John, and it proposes that Hauptmann was part of a conspiracy with two other German-born men named John and Walter Knoll. Now, Robert Zorn's father believed that as a teenager, he had witnessed the conspiracy being discussed. I think pretty much today what everyone can agree on is that, that Bruno Hauptmann was involved, I think, in some capacity because this is a I, I feel like it's too big of a conspiracy if this is the case to 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 frame this guy you know what I mean no yeah I mean th- yeah there's there's a there was a lot of factors for him to for it to come back to him I, but I do think I don't think he acted alone I don't know I I just I don't know why I don't think he acted alone I think he couldn't reveal who he acted with because if he did that meant he was he was guilty so you think he had some hopped men power I do indeed I do indeed and it's going to be one of those mysteries that I think people will still, you know, question for years and years and years. And since then, though, so much of went on and wrong with the Lindbergh kidnapping is now today like standard procedure for other kidnapping cases. But I think now the police learned a lot from the, I think, aspects of this case that were mishandled. I am sure there were aspects of this case that were mishandled, but I'm just, I don't, there seems to be so much evidence pointing to Bruno Houtman that he's never seemed to have didn't seem to deny when they said, why is this guy's name and phone number written on the wall? Like he said, Oh, it's, 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 he didn't say, Oh, there, there's no phone number that's there. He said, no, there is a phone number. I was interested. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he never did any evidence that was presented. He didn't seem to deny. He just said it was something that it didn't seem to be as opposed to saying, I never wrote that number on a wall. Also, one of the other things that I thought was so interesting is when you look at these publications and you read, even before Bruno Hopman is convicted, just how biased they are. So it's they the most of the newspaper industry is automatically saying this is a horrible, horrible human being. And once again, I yes, I understand that. However, you're the newspaper. I don't mm-hmm. think you need to like give your commentary. It's like the guy in the newsreel footage who's like, "That's a reminder. You yeah. come here illegally." And break our rules, we'll get you. Like, okay, cool, cool. That's a commentary. That's a commentary. Just, just tell me the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, ma'am. I'm also disturbed by the fact that I'm wondering how many other kidnappings back then occurred that got 
like no attention. Oh, yeah. But because this guy was a hero, once again, you're a celebrity, you sort of get carte blanche. The best thing probably for him to do was be told, you cannot be involved in this investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's that, folks. I'm interested to hear what you have to think say about it. Uh, do you think that Bruno Hopman was guilty? Do you think he was working with other people? Do you think he was innocent? Uh, and if he is innocent, then who killed the Lindbergh baby? And you're absolutely right, Ray. I think if there was television back then, this would have been on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, now to lighten the mood. Let's bring in, what did you say when we played one of the news clips? Happy music, sad news. <laughs> well, let's reverse that. Sad story, happy mark. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a, this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. All right, Mr. Schroeder. Were you aware of the Lindbergh baby before this? I was. I knew about this. I knew what was happening. You used to babysit it, right? I used to. I was asleep that day. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't paying attention. But look, Charles Lindbergh was not the first nor the last public persona to have unfortunate circumstance before their offspring. Okay? True. It's happened plenty of times today. Look at today. Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Amen. Did you see the acting in that Godfather Dad. 3. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit today about some oh, other sorry. celebrities' kids who've had some brushes with danger in a little game called Bad Things Happen When Your Parent's a Celebrity Kid. <laughs> Dennis Miller, That's folks. Dennis Miller talking to you. Uh, I'm going to describe a scandal, tragedy, misadventure that happened to a famous person's child. Rob and Ray, you're going to work together okay. to okay. determine who that celebrity parent is. This Emmy Golden Globe winning actor has a son who once claimed to have tiger's blood. Uh, t- Charlie Sheen. So Martin Sheen's the father. Ma- oh, Martin Sheen. Correct. Save. Remember that. Come on. Lock in. Lock yeah, in. Yeah, lock yeah. in, buddy. Lock in. In March 2021, this Academy Award winning actor's son coined the phrase white boy summer. Uh, Tom Hanks. Hanks' son. Chet that Hanks. Is, that is correct. Yeah, go for a bonus point. Name, this, name the kid as well. Chet but, Hanks. There you go. But it's H-A-N-X. Yeah. Are you joking? I think I think he actually legally did it. I mean, he is very cool. This Grammy-winning singer's daughter, like her, also died by drowning in a bathtub allegedly after a drug overdose. It's Whitney Houston. That's the answer. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby Houston. Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown is correct. Yes. Bobby with an I. Give you a little two bonus points for them. This rapper turned actor's son wore a white Batman outfit to the 2014 wedding of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. Rapper turned actor's son. Would that be uh, O'Shea Jackson, Ice Cube's son? Great guess, but no, that is Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith. Of course. Will Smith. Christ. In 2007, yeah, never heard it said like that, have you? After receiving four speeding tickets in 11 months, this iconic athlete's son was involved in a car accident in Clearwater, Florida, that left his passenger and friend in perpetual nursing home care. That would be Terry Bollea's son. Oh, hello. Do you know the kid's name for an extra bonus point? His first name is fine. If you ever watched the Hogan I know reality Brooke. show. I know Brooke. Did you ever watch that Hogan reality show? I did. Dude? Hogan, Hogan Knows, knows Best, best. Or whatever? Yeah, I did watch that. That's all, oh, What's great. his name? That's Nick Bollea. Nick, Nick. Bollea. Oh, yeah. wow. In 1990, this legendary performer's son shot and killed his half-sister's boyfriend, at his father's house. Will be me, Mr. Marlon Brando. Do you remember his son's name? Christian, Christian Brando. Hello. He was doing an episode, upcoming Skippy episode Lowe. on the... Oh, you know his, it all uh, ties in together. This religion. Oh. It's a Unitarian. Bingo. All right, you guys are rocking this. Final question. This three-time Emmy and one-time Tony winning actor's daughter 
was nominated for a 2011 Adult Video News Award for Best POV Sex Scene. What? This three-time Emmy and one-time Tony-winning actor's daughter was nominated for a 2011 Adult Video News Award Best POV Sex Scene. Joel Grey? Uh, uh, I, 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 uh, no. Whose daughter does porn, essentially? Whose daughter does porn? Uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'm he's surprised. He's won three Emmys, so he's a TV actor, right? Judd Hirsch? Don Knotts' daughter. This is Lawrence Fishburne's daughter. Oh. Montana Fishburne. Really? Oh. He's doing some stuff. Did you know that Steven Spielberg's daughter does... Like stuff? OnlyFans, yeah. Did you know that ET has an OnlyFans? I did, yeah. And it's a lot of finger stuff. You know where he puts yeah. that finger? Yeah, a lot of really interesting places. Yeah, and then you glow in that aura area. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's cool. I know. It's only six bucks a month. It's worth it. You cried. Do you think it's as emotional the ET porn? Like as... I think so. Okay, but it's not his finger that glows. No, and instead of it panning over the doll's head, it's dicks. <laughs> I, I, hey, listen. I thought an idea was good. You know what else I think is good? Heading over to our Instagram at This Was a Thing Pod or going over to our website, www.thiswasathing.com, and uh, uh, see what, we, what we're up to. And hey, $5 a month Patreon? Come on. That means uh, every you've other week got it. you get exclusive content. You know you've got it. Look, I'm not. I can say this because I'm not one of the hosts. Come on, guys, fucking cough it up. You got it. You got five dollars a month. What the hell is going on? What are we like in a recession or something? Come on, don't look, get look, coffee look, once. We're happy. We're just happy. You're listening at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want the money. Enforcer guy comes. Come, fucking do it. Come on, guys. Like Pops Sid, out of the car. You're like Sid Caesar in Vegas vacation. Oh boy, give me the money. Give me the money. I want. I want the money. The money is mine. He's <laughs> mine. <laughs> Hey, uh, you want to see my Sid Caesar? It's from the pinnacle of his career. Vegas vacation, at baby. The Kino, at the Kino board. Can you do Sid Caesar's workout video? Uh-uh. Oh, look at these girls. Oh, I'm going to see these girls. I'm eating a pancake. Yeah, <laughs> all the eggs. <laughs> Ooh, eggs. <I'm> never... <laughs> that hurts my throat. <laughs> all right, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 